Hey there, uglies. Yes, I know you're expecting a new episode, and trust me, I was planning on putting one out. I had the stories all ready to go. I'm in Vegas right now, and uh, Edie isn't here, so I had reached out to some friends to figure out if I could get a guest. Someone agreed, and unfortunately, last night, they got sick. Food poisoning. Not, uh, not, you know, the, the Rona. <laughs> but, uh, I was like, ah, I don't want to just not put anything out. Let me dig through the crates. Let me pull some stories from old episodes that, that I enjoyed. I hope you enjoy them. And I also pulled some stories from episodes that we unpublished that you can't find unless, uh, somehow you save them all. So enjoy this rewind into true scary stories with Edie and let me know uh, which stories you think we were tipsy on because you guys remember how we used to be back in the day, right? Well, let's go down that street again. Enjoy the episode. And this next story is called Offline. It would have taken a tornado to tear Simpson away from video games. We had a strict schedule. Every Saturday night at 9, Sim and I met like clockwork on a private voice chatting platform. It was an important tradition, and we kept it going ever since Sim moved out to the northeast side of the country. Our moms both hated the hours, but they knew it was our only shot at staying friends, so we never got caught too much shit for it. Sim and I were friends since kindergarten, so we always felt like we never should have been split up in the first place. Plus, it was summer. Neither of us had any plans but sleep, sushi, and maybe more games on Sunday. That night, we spent a couple of hours on an RPG and then moved on to a first-person shooter that had always been Sim's favorite. There was a mechanism in the game that kept track of how many times a player killed others and how many times he died. As per usual, Sim and I dominated the leaderboard every time. We were cocky kids. And when we left the other randoms, and we let the other randoms know it by talking a metric ton of shit. Sim had no problem telling a kid to kill himself in the chat. Looking back, that was pretty fucked up. Even then, it was a little heavy. I had sarcastically warned him again and again against saying it, but our friendship was a delicate balance. We bonded over those online battles, and it always brought us a bit closer together, so I never wanted to ruin it by sounding like a baby. Some guys and girls took it personal, sure. Their arguments, cusses, and tears, Sim powered through it all. He took a lot of pride in berating and beating down the bitches who thought they could buy this game and beat him. Poor Simmy never had any, never had to deal with any bitch quite like this. Sometime after one, on a cold night, he logged off out of nowhere. A couple of seconds later, I got a text. Power's out. 12.58 a.m. I should be right back. Looks like my neighbors still have lights. 12.59 a.m. It had happened before. Sim's family house was situated on a faulty grid and it was prone to surges throughout the night. Even as a high school kid, Sim had petitioned his local city to fix it. His mom had swelled with pride at that one, even though she knew it was just so Sim could spend more time gaming. Sixteen minutes later, I got a third text. Good to go. My microphone is not working though. 1.15 a.m. In seconds, Sim had booted his computer back up and joined my online party. We queued for a game and played a few more as the hours of the early morning started to wind their way down. Somehow, though, it seemed that with each game, Sim's skills had seriously started to decrease. He was not trash-talking players anymore. In fact, he was not saying much of anything. 
I supplied the background noise by prattling on about strategy and timing via a one-way conversation on the audio chat. I knew his mic was busted, but I still expected to hear something, anything from him. He was not a quiet kid, especially when he was caffeinated. Around four, we were starting to lose our games to lack of sleep. I let Sim know that it had to be time for me to log off. Without a word, Sim City, as he called himself, signed offline. Weird. That was all I was prepared to call it. Weird. By the time I signed offline and headed to bed, it was not even a second thought in my mind. I woke up at 7 to my phone ringing like crazy and my mom screaming. It was the police. We hustled down to the station house and were told to sit in the waiting room. We didn't sit too long before one of the officers led us to his office. Then he spoke seven simple words that were enough to shoot some ice into my veins. Your friend Simpson was shot last night, was all he said. After that, he studied me for a long time. My face was full of shock, undoubtedly, shock followed by a long wave of fear and sadness. I cried a lot, but then I was ashamed. He continued, I am sorry to say he succumbed to his wounds and his assailant is still at large. There is some evidence on his computer that you two talked last night. That is why our police department was contacted and why you were brought down to the station this morning. We need some answers. My mom gave me a look. I told the officer everything I knew. Together with the police department in Sim's hometown on speakerphone, we pieced together the puzzle. Sim's power was cut at approximately 12.56 a.m. But there was no issue with the grid. The way it was done, someone had to cut the electricity electricity locally. When the perpetrator was finished, he stepped inside. Two dirty boot marks were recovered from the welcome mat. After that, the officers ascertained that the perpetrator murdered Sim and every member of his family. The entire thing was probably done with a semi-automatic, maybe with a silencer, and there was no evidence of patience or pause. They were shot like it was an execution. The killer simply walked inside, stepped into every bedroom, and shot six or seven rounds into its occupants. The officers believed that the killer didn't even step inside to the bedrooms to see if his victims died. At 1.10, power was restored to the property. At 1.13, the computer in the basement was logged into the network. At 1.15, a single text message was sent from Sin's phone to mine. The killer left blood-stained fingerprints that are still being scanned. At 4, the electricity was cut again. The subject presumably then left the property, and an hour later a note was discovered by the neighbor on the front door of the family's house. It read, in sloppy juvenile handwriting, Sim City has been wiped out by player one. A suspect was never identified. The DNA and fingerprints did not match a single search in the crime database. Any recent attempts to trace relevant IP addresses have been blocked or rerouted by sophisticated software, and the boot prints the officers found were about as common and as useless as any others around. Now I'm scared to sign in every Saturday at 9, because sometimes I still see SimCity online. Oh, no! It was a young dude who he had said some bad stuff to, and then he came... And kill- killed everybody. Oh, well, that's why you shouldn't... You know, those games don't are so... Don't touch it online. Those games are so violent, don't you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, man... That's definitely what happened, and they, I guess they never find, found, they never found the kid. Nope. Well, there you go, guys. That's why you gotta be nice to us in our comments in the, on iTunes. Because you never know, we're crazy.
back and forth. Something happened tonight, and I know many of the events that may follow. So I'm starting this before anything substantial happens in an effort to actually prevent those things from happening somehow. Let me clarify. I've had a Ouija board for a few years. I've used it a fair amount of times. I know how to use it, what the dangers are, etc., etc. I was with my group of friends tonight, and they wanted to use my board. I agreed, as we usually get a kick out of it, and nothing too bad ever really happens to us. We don't go all out trying to protect ourselves by lining all the doorways with salt and stupid things like that. Honestly, doing that every time before you begin is just a pain and unrealistic in my opinion. Although, before we start, we do always say negative energies or potential demonic presences are forbidden to communicate with us, and we only wish to speak to the good. A few months ago, I brought my board over my friend Emily's house, where our other two friends, Nick and John, joined us. We're going for about an hour until we started communicating with this one spirit that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, Zoe. A lot of the time, when you're communicating with Zoe, he first portrays himself as an entity with kind intentions, but quickly he proves otherwise. After I realized it was him, I quickly ended the session in the proper manner. We're all a little freaked out after that. We decided to put the board away and go for a walk. We're in Emily's basement as we were getting ready to go up. We heard a loud bang in her kitchen. We finished getting our stuff together and as... When we walked up into the kitchen, all of her cabinet doors and pantry doors were open. Freaky. We all assumed it was the work of Zoe, so we ran out of the house and didn't return that night until we absolutely had to. Not too much happened after that, at least nothing of dire significance. Small things were happening to really only me. Banging or knocks in my house, unexplanatory footsteps here and there, things of that nature. I didn't really take any of it too seriously, to be quite honest, since I never felt as if I was in danger. Eventually, they stopped, and that was that. Now, that's only the beginning of the story. Tonight, since it's been a few months, we decided to try again because we were bored. We tried to contact Emily's grandmother, other people we have lost, random nice spirits. We were really just having fun with it. I lost one of my closest friends to cancer a little over a year ago, and I wanted to try to contact her. It was when I was doing that things started to get weird. I asked if she was there, and it quickly moved to yes. When I asked her to prove it by spelling out our secret word, the oracle started moving rapidly back and forth from A to Z. Uh-oh, I knew where this was going. That is a common thing that happens when you're in contact with Zoe. Then the oracle started to spell out gibberish. I was growing impatient, impatient so I ended the session. We're going to try again in a few minutes, and as soon as we put our hands on the oracle before we even asked anything, it was doing the same thing. I yelled stop, and the second I did, the movement ceased. I asked who was there, and when I did, it spelled out my name. It was only me and Emily doing it at this point. The second it finished spelling my name, it spelled hers. My friend John joined in, and the second he touched the oracle, it spelled out John. It then said it wanted to hurt us, and that something bad was going to happen. Then it said we were in danger, and not to worry because it will protect us. Then it said that nothing was going to happen and we are all safe. At this point, I was so honestly confused. So much more stuff happened, but you get the gist of things. I know it was Zoe. All the signs were there, and it wouldn't be the first time we talked to him. I don't know what's going to happen next, or how it can prevent anything from happening. Zoe is known for being violent, and I've just read so many horror stories about him and the impact he has had on people's lives. I know we were stupid for trying again, but months had gone by, and we thought we were safe. 
What's done is done, and I just want to know how to keep myself, my friends, and my family safe from whatever Zoe has in store for us. Wow! I like how you call it Zoe now because it sounds so much more friendly than You know what? what it actually is called. And, like, Zoe sounds like a nice girl with curly red hair and purple glasses. My mouth is making it hard for me to read these things. Oh, well, you're also drinking tequila, which dehydrates your mouth. No, it's very wet. Ooh. Yeah, I, I keep sucking saliva. Hey, Nick. Heard you got that wet, 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 wet. Okay, Well, well. I was trying to make it scarier, but maybe the tequila is a thing too. <laughs> okay, why did you <laughs> laugh when I read the title? what? I read the title and you were laughing. I I was saw thinking your... your stupid Luigi board. <laughs> I was like, what a stupid idea. it's me! <laughs> stupid! Well, Mario was the main character, Oh, but... okay, I don't know anything. I, I, I don't know anything Okay, about continue. literally anything. Continue. Um... Yeah, I've never heard anything nice coming out of a Ouija board. No one's ever like, you know, I got to talk to my grandmother. It's always like, it's always bad. Don't do it. And if you do it and you've heard this podcast, I honestly don't feel sorry for you. If you get haunted by something, just don't bring it upon me because I told you. Um, yeah, negative energies are forbidden. Like that would really help. Hey, but we don't go through all of the putting salt on the door. Oh, you mean when you're contacting demons, you can't be bothered to take any precautions, you dummy? You just tell them not to show up. Yeah. Hey, Hey, can you guys no. not show up? <laughs> no, uh, no negative energies. Those are forbidden. Like, negative energies are really going to be like, oh, you're going to come, but they said, they said no negative energies. Like, even people, if you said, hey, no negative people, people would... Still show up who are negative. No one thinks they're negative. Even demons, they think they're nice. Yes. But no, that's not going to stop it. So <sighs> this person I really don't feel bad for because it's like, well, you're playing with a Ouija board and you didn't Yeah, take any precautions. and it's their Ouija board, so it makes sense that they were the ones that were experiencing more of the paranormal I can't things. be bothered to put salt on the door. You mean salt, the seasoning everybody has that could protect your soul Yeah. for eternity? <laughs> Wait a minute, is that why we put salt around alcoholic drinks? Because it protects the spirits? Yes, Oh my god. and it's also more fun to be more dehydrated the more you drink. The le more dehydrated you are, the funner! Because <laughs> alcohol dehydrates you, that's what, ha I don't know if that's what makes it fun, but it does do that. I think this is your fault, honestly, because you said that dumb thing, and I'm so uh, good, You didn't have to explain I'm a good it. co-host, so I just go along with it, you know? I just try to be here for you. <laughs> You, you, you're lucky you're so handsome. Okay, shh, okay. Do you have any more points? No, those are all the points. Okay, all right, that's good enough. Okay, thank you, Nick. <laughs> what history leaves behind? I live in Chechnya. near Prague. Chechnya is an ancient country full of Gothic castles, and the history can definitely be felt here. There's an eeriness that comes with land that has just seen too much. From the Black Death to the fact that every major tragedy and war in European history has left its mark in Chechnya. As with any old country, there are many dark tales of screeching spirits, haunted spots, burning witches, and terror-striking hellhounds. But don't get it wrong, Chechnya is a very nice place. definitely worth visiting. I just love emphasizing the murky, gloomy stuff no one but me usually cares about or feels are real. So, with that being said, 
The story takes place a bit far away, like 30-minute car ride from Prague, in a small village my friends live in. One of the friends lived this story and later related to me. It was a nice evening of a warm summer day, and my friend was spending time in a pub with someone she knew. Spending time in a pub is as natural as taking a bath around here. It doesn't matter if you're 16 or 60. It was one of those days young people spend wilding out, riding bikes, drinking, getting high, or just doing whatever good time is synonymous with to them. While doing this, they often drift from village to village. Villages and towns are only like one to two kilometers apart until very late hours. So she's just chilling in this pub. Out of nowhere, a terrified young couple burst through the door, totally panicking. Naturally, she and her friend immediately take care of them. And when calmed down a bit, they convey the cause for their lack of composition. They were just taking a walk from the other village, walking on a road with fields to their left and the woods to their right, when the sound of hooves drumming on a concrete reached their ears, coming from behind them, from behind them, from utter darkness. Turning around, their eyes, adjusted to the pitch black dark by now, supported marginally by the faint moonlight, fell upon a dark figure, bent forward, sporting black horns and galloping quickly after them. Its black hooves grooving, clack, 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 clack on the concrete surface. They run for it. They run full speed for their very lives until they entered the village and saw light coming out of the pub and popped in. To this day, nobody knows what it was. And I don't know if someone from that area has experienced something similar, but she told me the woods, the one on the couple's right when it happened, hides some kind of dump. And that dump in the woods just radiate evil. It's been a few years now, and all I can say is that the older I get, the feeling of strangeness of a land that has seen so much history unfold is getting stronger and stronger. But please, visit. Yeah, come on. <laughs> come on, man. How can you want to visit? Is it the hooves? Yeah, it's okay. Is it the hooves? They just make sure you get to the pub quick. That's all they're doing. Right. They got kids at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> they got kids at the bar. Some places, though, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard if you are old enough to put the money on the counter, you're old enough to drink in some countries. Yeah. That's, that sounds fake now that I'm saying it, but... <laughs> well, so, it some countries true. are just lax with their, their like you maybe. know, drinking. Drinking wine is a big thing in, like, the Mediterranean kind of thing with, at mostly... Maybe in Czechia? What's it called? Czech, uh, Czechia. Ches Actually, I didn't look it up. <laughs> I couldn't tell. Okay. I just read what it says. It's C-Z-E-C-H-I-A. I'm sure we're completely wrong. Yeah, so it could be Czechia... Czechia, che well, like Czechoslovakia. So if, any, Czechia. if anyone, any uglies out there know, uh, don't tell us because we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just gonna you're gonna spell it out. How are you gonna tell us? Eddie. It was seven years ago. Seven years ago, my two baby cousins were born, conceived via IVF. However, my aunt was at heavy risk carrying three babies. It was decided that she had to abort one. That was one of her identical twins. The two remaining twins were fraternal. My aunt was devastated about losing a child even before he was born. When she went into labor, my family and I were there at the hospital. She gave birth to my cousins, a boy named Bobby and a girl named Jenny. The babies were completely healthy. Jenny was so joyful and happy. She was born smiling. Bobby was a bit withdrawn. He was the identical brother of the child we had lost. He was sickly and very weak. 
He had to stay in the hospital for over two months after he was born. The doctors told us that it was the complications from aborting a sibling that shared an amniotic sac with him that made him weak. Around five years passed and the babies grew up normal. Bobby gradually became healthier. However, he would constantly have night terrors, but whenever he would wake up, he would forget about him. Our families lived together in the same apartment building, so Bobby and Jenny came to me every day while our parents went to work. Then my grandfather passed away. In his will, he gave me a telescope, a compass, and a magnifying glass. They were pretty old and crummy. I had them repaired and polished. I used to look outside of my house with a telescope sometimes. One day, Bobby and Jenny came up to me and asked me for my telescope. I loved their curiosity, and I gave it to them. They looked at the park in my complex, giggled, and laughed. While Bobby played with the telescope, Jenny looked at the magnifying glass and started looking at the walls. She turned around to Bobby, and then she asked him, Bobby, who is that behind you? I thought that was a comment that was odd. Bobby didn't notice what she said and simply replied with a, What? Jenny simply said loudly, Nothing, and continued playing with the magnifying glass. I didn't think anything of it at the time. A few months later, my aunt and uncle took Jenny to the dentist for a routine checkup, so I was alone with Bobby. I prepared his evening snack, which is a glass of milk with strawberry jam mixed in it. I gave it to him and went to fix something for myself as well. When I returned... He had already finished the drink. He asked me for more, to which I replied, Aren't you fool? That was a big glass. He replied, Yes, it was, but I had to share it, obviously. Share it with who? I asked him. He replied, With Eddie, of course. Who else? I proceeded to ask him, Who's Eddie, Bobby? Bobby replied, Stop joking. You know who Eddie is. Everyone does. He's my brother. He looks exactly like me. You always forget his snacks, and I have to share every time. If I don't share, he gets angry. This weirded me out a lot. Eddie was one of the names that my aunt was thinking about naming one of the twins before the abortion. Did someone tell Bobby about the pregnancy problems? What I thought was that Bobby's little brain probably couldn't fully comprehend what happened and created the imaginary sibling. Another year later, Bobby and Jenny were playing hide-and-seek in the house. She had taken my magnifying glass and was running around everywhere looking for Bobby, pretending to be an old-school detective who was searching for clues. I was in my room watching YouTube when I heard Jenny scream. I ran to her and saw her sobbing. Bobby was with her, trying to console her, but she kept screaming. I picked her up and started to call her. She blurted it out while crying, Bobby hit me! Her crying continued, so I put her to bed in my room with some ice cream, after which she quieted down a little bit. Bobby went off to watch TV in the living room. I went to check on Jenny after giving Bobby a sandwich to eat. Jenny had eaten about half of the ice cream when I entered the room. I said, Hey, are you alright now? She said, Yeah, I'm okay, but Bobby scared me. I asked her, What did he do to you? Jenny told me the following. Well, I was looking for Bobby with a magnifying glass, and then he came up to me and screamed in my ear loudly. He then hit me at the back of my head and started laughing. His head was completely red with red dripping from cuts on his forehead. Then he broke the magnifying glass and ran away. Then he came back without the cuts, and then you came. He scared me so much. When I asked Bobby what happened, he feigned ignorance. He simply told me, I just found her crying. Maybe it was Eddie that hit her. She described him to me. His head bleeds a lot. My magnifying glass was broken. When I picked it up and looked at him through it, I saw a dark silhouette of a boy sitting beside him, covered in blood, smile at me through the broken cracks of the magnifying glass. In my culture, we have a belief of an unborn spirit that is, a spirit who is unable to be born. Often the incomplete parts of such spirits were replaced with demonic mana that changed the incomplete spirit and twist them into a very dangerous and very, very evil entity. If you see a child with cuts on his forehead, be warned, your life has been invaded by a newly born demon. Oh, I'm warned, all right.
Yeah. The freakiest part of this is what they were feeding those kids. Yeah, the milk and the strawberry milk jam. Milk and strawberry jam. I know. And like, oh, you're, aren't you full after drinking all that milk and strawberry jam? No, I shared my weird snack with my demon brother. We're uh, weird. Uh, uh, okay, come on and have your peanut butter and, and cereal. Oh, okay. Breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Breakfast. <laughs> all right, well, that was freaky. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. The the yeah the jam and the I guess we're gonna have to try that out. That sounds really gross. Yeah. <laughs> I also wonder what his culture is. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's a great mystery. And this next story is called Tap Tap at the Window. Oh my gosh! All stories with Tap Tap are so scary. I yeah. don't know if I'm gonna be able to handle this. Yeah. I just got over the last Tap Tap. Well, get ready for Tap Tap number two. Tap Tap. At the window. Tap? <laughs> All right, go ahead. After reading this tale, you probably won't sleep well tonight. Oh! Reddit user Navajo Joe's horrifying encounter with a skinwalker sounds like something right out of a horror movie. After collecting firewood, Joe, who was a child at the time, and his uncle got back into their pickup truck to head home. Joe felt something staring at him from outside his passenger window. He was about to look out behind him. His uncle shouted to him, Don't! Instantly, there was a tapping on the window behind him. While the two continued their frightful journey home, the pickup truck suddenly dipped down in the back, as if something heavy had climbed into the truck's bed. All the while, the uncle kept repeating Navajo prayers and commanding Joe not to look behind him. Suddenly, the creature that climbed into the truck bed started tapping at the rear window. The tapping went on for a while until they finally felt the creature jump out. A few years later, Joe confronted his uncle about the events that transpired that night. The uncle confessed to him, I didn't see faces, just eyes. It watched you. Uncomfortable with his uncle's answers, Joe jokingly asked his uncle why he didn't just brake check the creature while it was in the truck bed. To this, the uncle eerily replied, because of it, it wasn't alone. Oh, oh man, that freaked me out. No, I don't like that. Oh, no. My Shyamalan twist at the end. I told you, and those blinds are creepy. Oh, no, that was Rigby. <laughs> you well, scared let's turn me. on the light. No, I like it. Okay. You scared me. That was just Rigby. That was just Rigby, <laughs> who is a dog-like creature. You got scared. Okay. We, okay, we really did get scared. You heard it live. Oh, no, wait, not live. Opposite well, of live. Recorded. <laughs> All right. We're still alive. Yep. Yes. Okay. Are you ready for the next one? Or are, you, are you too scared? I'm not going to turn the lights on. It's so okay. stupid. Okay. All right. I live in a simulated town. I feel like I should get this out of the way at the start. I'm not writing this because I just discovered I'm living in a simulated town. In fact, I've known since I was about 12 years old. A bit of backstory before I get into my problem. My town is named Truman. Yes, exactly like the movie, I'll get into that later. And well, the whole place is fake. Pretty sure it's all computer generated. So wherever my brain really is, it probably is jacked in an environmental simulator sophisticated enough to trick my senses. Everything looks and sounds real, even compared to actual cities, which I've only recently been able to research on the internet. Food tastes real, I think. 
I've never been anywhere outside of Truman, so I have no frame of reference, but it certainly looks like pictures and videos of real food that I've seen. The town itself is about 20 kilometers from end, one end to the other, and everything is built on what a circular island surrounded by endless oceans. No airport, no ships ever coming or going, so basically no way to leave the island. Standard fake town stuff, I think. As I said, I didn't realize how weird all this was until I was 12. I was on my computer late one night doing some research on the internet, which is pretty much a joke. You know North Korea? Imagine their internet access with about 50% fewer pages. Yeah, not a great amount of detail about the outside world. But then that night, I remember my computer monitor flickering violently. The system powered down for a short time, and when it came back on, bam, real internet access. Real news from the real planet Earth. It took a long night of clicking around and reading articles for me to put the pieces together and finally come to the obvious conclusion. There is no town called Truman. I mean, there are a bunch of them, just but not mine. And you know what? Honestly, didn't care. It was a shock at first, no question, and it took a while to really come to grips with the situation, but in the end, it didn't bother me at all. I spent a long time researching other cities and found that they always had pizza restaurants and movie theaters and stuff, and really, that's all my 12-year-old self cared about. I wasn't missing anything. But a lot of those cities also had violent crime, poverty, drugs, and a ton of other bad things that really freaked me out as a kid. Truman didn't have any of that, so I kind of just kept it to myself. The thing is, I'm pretty sure it was supposed to bother me. I mean, I think the whole point of why I'm here was so that I would eventually figure it out and react in some way. The next morning, my parents asked me if I had finished all my homework, and I said, yup, and showed them the report I had written about tigers or whatever. They both stopped and stared at me like they were taken aback. My dad said, yeah, you didn't find anything else? You were on the computer all night. My mom said, yeah, you didn't find anything unusual? Something you want to talk to us about? I said, nah, just tiger stuff. What's for breakfast? And after a few seconds of silence, they went back to normal and made me some pancakes. It never came up again. On top of all that, I didn't know if I made this clear yet, but this town is a really crappy virtual environment. If the goal was to have me believe it was a real place for a long time, someone seriously dropped the ball. I recently discovered Rick and Morty. And you know that episode where the alien scammers put Rick in a simulation? I'm talking that level of incompetence. To start with, they named the town Truman, for Christ's sake. Google and type in Truman, fake town, and literally the first result is a movie about Jim Carrey living in a fake town. And as if that wasn't obvious enough, there's this whole endless ocean nonsense. I mentioned before that, unlike Truman Show, this is, town isn't a set. The people in it aren't actors pretending to be ordinary citizens living here. The whole place is computer generated, which means they could have easily just simulated a planet with no easily perceivable boundary. They would just rather render new environments as I walk through them, which would be much harder to detect. Instead, endless oceans. So I think the whole internet glitch thing was supposed to be my big tip-off that things weren't right, and that was supposed to spark me into some kind of, I don't know, freak-out, anger, terror, insanity. I don't know what the goal was, but I'm fairly sure that they, or whoever they are, didn't expect me to just say, mm, whatever, and roll with it this long. They tried to get me to a lot throughout my childhood, but I just kept refusing to engage. I was walking along the coastline at the edge of town one time and a mysterious looking man approached me and said, did you ever notice how no boats or planes ever leave from here? And I just said, nope, and kept going. I've received dozens of cryptic emails all along the same vein. Something's not right in Truman. We're all in terrible danger. This is all a lie. Wake up, you have to wake up. And I ignored them all. Things always went back to normal after a while. I started dating a girl when I was 16. 
She was also fake, as is everyone else here, but I didn't care because, well, I was 16. And one night she called me around 1 a.m. saying, Nathan, they're coming. Oh my God, they're coming for you. You have to get out of Truman. Get out. And then the line went dead. She was gone for a couple of months and then showed up back at school. We went out a few more times after that. These prompts stopped around the time I turned 18. For a few years after that, things were more or less normal. I'm a pretty simple person, I guess, and I never had any reason to rock the boat. I had my fake family, my fake friends, lots of fake fun stuff to do. And since they never bothered to program a fake college in a Truman, I no longer had to go to school. For a while, I tried to get a fake job, but that didn't pan out. Every manager at the store gave me the same response when I asked. A few seconds of dead silence, followed by, I'm sorry, but that is unavailable at this time. It didn't matter, though, because my parents continued giving me money every week and never asked me to move out. In short, I was content. So here's why I'm finally talking about this after all this time. I really don't think the simulation was intended to run this long. In fact, I'm not sure anyone is even still monitoring what's going on in here. A few weeks after I turned 22, I noticed the first, gl first glitch at a park near my house. A few men were playing a game of checkers on a table near a tree, but one of them didn't have a chair. He was sitting, but there was nothing underneath him but air. I blinked a few times at this, and the chair was there. I was so used to my virtual environment by this time that I didn't think weird must be the trick of the light. I thought, ha, a glitch. Boy, this place sucks. The glitches were actually pretty amusing at first. There would be people at cafes drinking hot cups of coffee, but there would be no cup, just a sloshing pile of coffee in their bare hands. Sometimes I'd go into rooms and it would take a few seconds for the color and texture of the walls to appear. Or a delivery person would come to the house, hand in an invisible package to my mom or dad, and they would proceed in the living room and unwrap what looked like thin air for a minute. Other times, random objects would appear in places they shouldn't. People would stomp around in boxes instead of shoes. I saw a guy writing notes in a journal, but he was using what looked like a narrow tube of toothpaste. I saw a teenage girl take what I think was supposed to be a phone out of her purse, but instead it was just a very large human tongue which she put up to her ear and began talking into. As the glitches began to increase in frequency, it became more and more difficult to interact with my environment. Once I was stung five times by bees, I couldn't see. Apparently, I had walked through a flower patch that I also couldn't see. When people started glitching as well, I became a little more concerned. I went out for a walk one afternoon and noticed there was this person walking about 20 meters ahead of me, but no matter what I did, he was always at the same distance. He never changed his pace, even when I ran as fast as I could or stood completely still. He still appeared to be walking at the same rate, but always at exactly the same 20 meter distance. I would turn a corner, and there he was, 20 meters away. Every now and then I would see people driving past in a car, and none of them will have faces, just blank spaces above their necks. Sometimes people would arrive at a building, but instead of going inside, they would just walk straight up the side of the building towards the roof. When they reached the top, they would keep walking directly up into the sky until they were no longer visible. And you know what that white noise buzz of many people talking in a crowd? That disappeared a while ago. Now they all just chant the same thing at the same time. Chat log unavailable at this time. Chat log unavailable at this time. Over and over again. Over time, I stopped being able to interact with anybody. When I talked to people, their responses were either unintelligible sounds or there would be no sound at all. I tried to get a coffee the other day and the barista looked at me for a moment and then began laughing. Really loud, hysterical laughing. All while looking at me directly in the eyes until eventually I just left. Getting something as simple as food has become a major challenge. Things are so buggy that most of the time I either don't know what I'm getting or can't find someone who will sell it to me. I've tried to eat more than a few totally ordinary objects because I was sure they were supposed to be food. Finally, I caved. I went to talk to my parents one morning to finally tell them I just noticed something unusual happening in Truman. 
Dad was sunk up to his waist on the floor and was saying, Hi there, how are you? over and over again to the closed front door. I went to find Mom instead. She was sitting on the couch reading a book with blank pages, but otherwise looked normal. Mom, can I talk to you for a second? She turned her head almost 180 degrees around to look at me without moving her body. I, uh, I was looking on the internet last night and I think something's wrong. Her expression didn't change. She said nothing. I mean, I think Truman might not be a real town. I think this town is fake. She stared. So, I mean, I'm pretty freaked out about this. So what do you think I should do? She stared. She opened her mouth to say something. She changed her mind and swiveled her head and continued back to reading. Nothing changed. I need to get out of here. I tried talking to other people and exactly the same thing happens. I've been all over town trying to find some other way to trigger whatever's supposed to end this simulation, but the prompt stopped so long ago that I'm worried it might be too late. Meanwhile, this town is continuing to fall apart at an alarming rate. The endless ocean is now just an untextured white void at the edge of town. Many buildings have turned into large rectangular boxes with no features. The sun doesn't even move anymore. It just hangs directly above the town, and the air is starting to get uncomfortably hot. I don't know if I have a body somewhere out there in the world, but if I do, I don't know how much more time it has or what will happen if it dies. I'm running out of options here. Please, if you have any ideas, help. What an interesting story. Yeah. I We never heard a story like this. This is so interesting. No, and you know, it's funny. Like Sometimes I'll be playing a video game, and I remember I used to be in the Sim, into Sims, and I would think to myself, randomly, I'd be like, what happens when we get tired of playing this game? Well, it's like Neopets. Sorry, I don't mean to be a dork, but <laughs> yeah. it's like Neopets, uh, you know? But I, I have Neopets that are somewhere that are dead. Or Tamagotchi or Nano. I'm, I'm got all of the... Fucking, yeah. Oh, sorry. I got all of the... Uh, I got all the references today. Or Nanopets or, or whatever. It's like when you're done with them, where do they go? Well, yeah, I'm talking about, like, Do you think that the simulation was only made, he's the only real one, or do you think there's other people who are real in the simulation? Oh, man, and then they just don't know? They haven't found each other? Yeah, like, maybe there are other people who are in the town who are like, what is going on? And then it's also like, here's another question. I mean, what if, because he didn't respond to the prompt, they were like, okay, well, let's give up. On this. Yeah, they're like, this is a, we're, we're shutting down this. Yeah, like he should have responded when he found out it was fake, but he was too comfortable to. But there's so many levels to this. Yeah. But he was too comfortable to be like, okay, well, I need to say something and find out if I'm the only one. Maybe they were like, oh, if you. Maybe it was just a test where they're like, let's grow someone in a simula- simulation and see what happens when they figure it out and then when he didn't care they were like okay well let's abandon this project as in they programmed like as much of a real human mind into him to see and i think he is human because what's up with these other people well that's what i'm thinking is that maybe he was programmed with a whole bunch of human personalities and traits and they're like let's see how this works out and a lot of people just want to be content no people just want to be content and then by the time he wanted to say something it was too late but what would have happened if he would have said something right away like hey, what? Maybe they and been... then also, how is he writing this? Because he must have still have the good internet that actually connects to the rest of the world. Well, it's funny because it was on Reddit. There is that that weird meme out there that somebody put where they were playing Sims, right? And they're like, yeah, I, I had a family of Sims. I sent them all to college. They all became computer scientists, and then they all proved a theory that that said that they were simu- living in a simulation. Mm-hmm. You know, so it I've was... never seen this meme. I've seen it. 
And it's well, just, yeah, obviously. And then they shut down. Like the people are like, it got really weird. Like, and then it, it was like an were, FBI was like, FBI, turn this off turn right this now. Off. <laughs> and I the mean, FBI that's, just that's the whole thing about AI. You know, there's robots now that I are know. becoming aware. My friend Brian, he really thinks that we are living in a simulation. He thinks we're living in a computer simulation, in that everything that happens is like. It is a number calculated from a computer to be like, okay, this is the outcome of this, and this is the outcome of this, and this is just all computer simulation in the future. He really believes that. There's he calls a lot of it. People that do. What does he call it? Simulation theory. Yeah. And sometimes when he sees things, he'll be like, oh, this because of simulation theory. Where he'll be like, you know, sometimes I see uh, coincidences, or I see like little glitches in the pattern. Yeah. Where he'll be like, okay, well, you know, he'll see the same person walking by or something like that. It's, it's like a like deja vu. A, yeah, it's kind of like the Matrix or something like that. He might just be crazy. I don't know. I think... I just listen to him because I like to listen to weird things. I mean, I... It's funny. We were just talking about this to somebody and the idea of believing in these stories enough to, like, enjoy them. It's all a possibility. Yeah, that's what I think in my head. I'm like, yeah, maybe. It also reminds me... I'm going to get into it now. Reference here. It reminds me of Invader Zim. I don't know if I... Invader Zim is one of my favorite cartoons ever. And Zim is an alien. He comes from a different planet to take over um, Earth. And what he does is, to pretend to be a human, is he makes, like, simulations around yeah. him. Where he he has fake parents. They're, like, robot parents. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of do this kind of stuff. And it's, like, the comic relief of the show. Yeah. Is that the parents will be o- open the door and be like, Hey, son, what's up? And they'll be, like, stabbing their eyes. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. they're not really programmed correctly because he doesn't know what it's like to be a human. Yeah. So he has all these simulations around him. He has, like, a dog who's a robot. And the dog does things that it's, like... You know, that's obviously not something a dog would do because he doesn't know what a human yeah. would do. I think, or he'll be like, I need to eat meat. Yeah. <laughs> or stuff like that. But, you know, he thinks that's what humans are like. This guy may have been... Okay, let's say... Let's take this in consideration. We'll do, do the cons- uh, computer scientist theory, right? So, in order for these people to get a PhD in computer science or a master's or whatever, they probably have to do a, uh, a final, like, project, uh, that maybe they work through for years. So they go to the lab, they create the simulated town, they mm-hmm. graduate, yeah. and then they just walk away and the town continues right, to Right, because they're like, oh yeah, I got it. It's like their Eagle project for like, Boy Scouts have to do something yeah. similar. They have to do like a big project at the end to become an Eagle yeah. Scout. And then it's just like, all right, that's it. Or, like even like uh, business majors and stuff like that in college, like I used to work for, I know, I'm sure I've said this before, I used to work for Scott Peterson the murderer because he yes i have said this to you before i said i used to have lacey peterson's job at the there's this place in san luis obispo called the shack and it was owned by scott peterson and that was his project as like a business i think he was a business major and for his final thing it was like you have to make a business and he made this sports bar and i worked there wow you didn't know that no that's like one of also the reasons i'm so and so into things like this and into like crime and stuff like that because yeah i used to work for scott peterson i didn't know a clue all right (laughs) well everybody knows now i've been dropping a lot of bombs all right let's get into the next story missing the following is a story my grandpa used to tell me before he passed away disclaimer i'm not a ww2 buff 
and I'm just telling the story the way I remember it. So some dates and locations might be off. My grandpa was a British infantryman in the Second World War. He was only about 19 years old when he enlisted to serve his country, and while he thought that joining the military would give him opportunities to see exotic locations around the world, he was never deployed to Tunisia or Italy or the Pacific. Instead, he ended up practically in his own backyard, Switzerland. Now this is just some historical information, but it's important to understand before reading the rest of the story. Switzerland did its best to maintain neutral status throughout the war. But regardless of its attempts to maintain neutrality, Switzerland was still highly sought out after by both the Allied and Axis powers. Once the Nazis began committing acts of aggression against Switzerland, England provided reinforcements to the Swiss military. Yet, in an effort to prevent open war within its borders, the Swiss government instructed its military to perform a series of tactical retreats into the Alps. And that's how my grandpa found himself stationed in a remote village in the Swiss Alps. Now at this time, it was early in the winter of 1943, and my grandpa's company was stationed in a secluded village of about 500 people. Part of the advantage they had with this location was that it was really hard to get to, and therefore had little chance of being spontaneously invaded by Nazi Germany. But this was also a disadvantage, because it made communication with the rest of the military very difficult. The issue with communication was further compounded when sometime in early December, a series of blizzards swept through the region and completely destroyed the few lines of communication that they had in the first place. So essentially, trapped in this isolated Swiss village without being able to make contact, my grandpa's captain decided it would be best to uphold the standing orders and continue defending the village. Weeks passed. Any roads to the outside world were buried in seven to nine feet of dense snowfall, and any telegraph phone lines that, had, that they had were equally useless. It grew deeper into the winter, and the leaves were stripped from the trees and the bare trunks protruded from the mountainside like broken ribs. The town was nestled between two large mountains. Sunlight only directly reached the town for a few hours each day, making the soldiers feel as if they were living in a state of perpetual dusk. One night, my grandpa was at a town bar with a few of his friends from the company, and a group of locals approached them, and one of them in particular was visibly upset. All the Swiss people in the town grew up speaking German, and none of them were used to having Brits around, so one of them began shouting in broken English, Where? Take you, the children! Luckily, one of the guys my grandpa was drinking with spoke fluent German and was able to act as an impromptu translator. After several minutes of confusion and yelling, the translator turned to my grandpa and the rest of the soldiers and said, They say some of the village children have gone missing. They want us to do something about it. Now, obviously, the British military doesn't exactly act as a bunch of mercenaries for hire, so my grandpa and his friends told the villagers to come back to the headquarters, which really is just makeshift barracks that they had thrown together into the town's church to talk to the captain. Due to the language barrier, the villagers' discussion with the captain took about two hours, and basically what the captain and his self-designated translator were able to piece together was that. A few weeks after the company entered the village, the locals had noticed a variety of bizarre incidents. At first, it was just benign stuff like vanishing pieces of wood and tarp from people's sheds. But over the following two months, people realized that valuable items were being stolen from their homes. One man claimed that his family heirloom, a handmade ceremonial axe, had disappeared from above his fireplace mantle. The culmination of all these incidents was when a village child went missing. Of course, many assumed that the child's disappearance, although tragic, could be attributed to something as simple as a boy falling into a snowdrift while playing outside, or possibly being attacked and killed by a wolf. 
But there wasn't only one child that disappeared. There were several. The villager who entered the bar, who looked especially upset, well, that was the father of two young boys who had gone missing two days before. He had searched everywhere for them, even rounded up a posse of his fellow townspeople to join the effort, but they couldn't find a single clue as to what happened to the children. The captain told the villagers that he would continue to look into the matter, and that he would begin sending some of his men to patrol the streets each night, looking for whoever was the culprit behind all these strange thefts and abductions. Later that night, Private Reginald disappeared from the barracks. Disappearing children was one thing, but a grown man? It seemed unlikely that an animal, I mean even a wolf, could have taken down a healthy, fully grown man on its own. Naturally, rumors began to surface that there was some sort of monster living in the mountains that came down at night to feast on the occupants of the village. Despite the nightly patrols ordered by the captain, the disappearances kept occurring. Reginald was the only adult victim of whatever was preying on the village, and the rest of the victims were all young kids between the ages of 5 and 10. All in all, including the original three kids who had gone missing, seven children vanished from the town. Many people in my grandpa's company were growing suspicious. One explanation got passed around was that impoverished villagers were actually selling their own children to human traffickers for extra cash. But even that didn't make sense because the roads into and out of town were still blocked by snow. Three more weeks passed without incident, and at this point it was early spring and the snow started to thaw. That night, coincidentally, when my grandpa was on patrol, they discovered what was behind the children's and Reginald's disappearances. It was some time past midnight when my grandpa and his comadres, his comadres, his comrades, sorry. <laughs> so Mexican. Noticed a figure peering through the bedroom window of one of the village's houses. My grandpa was at the opposite end of the street. So at first, the figure looking through the window didn't see the patrol. My grandpa and the other soldiers yelled at the prowler and immediately tore itself away from the window and began running away. Everyone in the patrol was certain that this was what was behind the disappearances and break-ins. They ran as fast as they could in pursuit through the melting snow and ice in the dead of the night, screaming at whatever it was to stop. They kept running and running and soon found themselves on the outskirts of the village, where the snow was still fairly deep. The figure jumped into the ground. It looked like it vanished into thin air. But as the patrol grew closer, they realized that the prowler had actually just jumped into a cave that had been hollowed out into the side of a snowdrift. Just as the soldiers began yelling into the cave for the figure to come out and show itself, several gunshots exploded out of the entrance to the snow cave. Without thinking, my grandpa and the rest of the patrol shouldered their weapons and all began firing into the hole. Silence. They waited for what seemed like hours, but was really just a couple of minutes. One incredibly brave member of the patrol volunteered to climb into the cave and investigate. He drew his pistol, kneeled down, and crawled into the cave. Several seconds later, he emerged with a completely horrified expression on his face. My grandpa took out his flashlight and shined it into the cave when he saw the gruesome explanation behind the strange occurrences in the town. The figure that they had been chasing was Reginald, the private who had gone missing weeks before. They had shot Reginald right through the heart. The cave was not only occupied by Reginald, but also the bodies of the seven partially eaten children. Either due to the stress of being snowed in all winter, living in near constant darkness, or some sort of terrible mental issue, Reginald had gone completely insane and had begun breaking into villagers' houses and snatching their children from their homes in the middle of the night. He had used the axe that had been reported missing 
to dismember the bodies after he slit the children's throats and hid them in the cave he carved into the snowdrift. Why didn't he just get some food from the kids? <laughs> <laughs> well, Why didn't he just ask them to bring him some food? I think he just had a... Uh, I mean, there is a, such a thing as, like, dark insanity, snow insanity, where if you're in a dark place for too long, you can go insane. Yeah, but everyone else was fine. Well, because they're all from Switzerland. So you... Except for the other we soldiers. We can't go to Switzerland. Reginald's just a weak dude, man. <laughs> but he was in the military. Oh, so there might not be some people that go crazy in the military? No, that's not what I said. I said <laughs> it's not usually a sign of weakness to be in the military. You're right. It's usually not a sign of weakness, uh, but think, the military can so, mess with people's heads. You think so little about our boys out there. No, no, no. Fighting for you. No, but rights. mental but mental illness is a is a true thing. <laughs> oh, wow. War makes people go crazy. Unpatriotic. <laughs> No, what I say as Americans, uh, we need to protect the mental health of our soldiers in any situation. This guy is out there Because fighting. they are fighting for Stop me. interrupting me. <laughs> this guy is out there fighting with his compadres. His compadres, his comadres is what I said. Comadres, hey. uh, You are over here sipping your coffee, talking about how not brave they are. I'm disappointed. No. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm very proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. Oh, is that it? All right, let's get to the next show. Show. show? Okay, yeah, the next <laughs> With show, our guys. compadres. Settling. My mind definitely wanders to some interesting places when I'm completely alone with my thoughts. I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I tend to think of the worst case scenarios. In particular, my scenarios tend to revolve around supernatural occurrences, largely because of my fascination with horror movies and stories alike. It all seemed so harmless at first. I was never afraid to let my imagination run wild with these thoughts because I knew they weren't real. I was making them up, so how could they? I now have a true understanding and understanding of how powerful our minds are. I just wanted things to go back to normal, but I realize it's not possible now. I can feel my time is coming to an end, and I have no one to blame but myself for being so careless and naive. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I suppose the best place to start would be at the beginning. I'm 25 years old and still live at home with my parents. Trying to find a decent place to rent is hard these days, and trying to find a job to even sustain a life on your own is even harder. My parents decided to take a trip for a week to Indiana to visit some family on my mom's side, which meant I would have a, our two-story house all to myself, and I couldn't have been more excited. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my family, but I also love my alone time. Don't forget to feed the birds and the koi fish while I'm gone, my mom reminds me as they were packing their suitcases in the car. I never forget to feed them, but I swear every time they would leave the house for a trip, something dies from a mysterious cause. Literally, never happens any other time and whether it's just my bad luck or timing i can never tell i won't i responded in somewhat of an annoyed groan i know my mom suspects i neglect or mistreat her pets while she's away because of the in the convenient timing of when something dies i will try to keep the kill count low this time i joked and tried to plaster a fake smile on my face to hide my annoyance my mom didn't find the joke very amusing though i'm serious jen I don't want to come home to another dead animal. I'm going to go for I'm going broke for every fish and bird I've had to replace. I'm sorry. Bad joke. 
I responded defensively and threw my hands up in the air to signal that I surrendered. To be honest, I was always annoyed at how she considered her pets to be more of things than living creatures. They both reminded me of things to keep an eye on around the house and gave me a kiss and a hug goodbye before they finally took off. They had barely backed out of the driveway when I heard them arguing about something trivial. I rolled my eyes and walked inside the empty house. Our house is what I would consider to be a typical two-story house. It has three bedrooms and two bathrooms upstairs, along with a giant loft that is used as a play area for my nieces and nephews. Downstairs is where you'll find the kitchen, which has a connected dining room. Next to that is our main living room, where most of our time is spent. There's a second dining room and living room, which is only used during large family gatherings. Besides the wall that divides the kitchen from the extra dining room, the floor plan is fairly open. Now, my thoughts do not start wandering immediately. From the moment my parents leave, I usually distract myself with reading, watching TV, or any other useless task that I feel like doing at the moment. It's once I truly settle and become aware of how silent my house is, once I'm aware of the silence, it's as if the house suddenly begins to come to life. Creaks and groans that are typically drowned out from the sounds of laughter and arguing just erupt from the house, as if it's waking up from a deep sleep. At that moment, I decided to take full advantage of the solitude and silence to finally finish reading my book I've been working on for the past few months. It's a great read, but hard to really stay focused with so much outside distractions and noise. At one point, I took a bathroom break and use this opportunity to also take time to quench my growing thirst. As I'm drinking my water, I look over at the blank screen of the TV, displaying nothing but a reflection of the room in front of it. I couldn't help but imagine how it would react if I saw the shadow of a figure in the reflection, a typical scenario used in a good majority of horror films. It would definitely scare the crap out of me if, I ever, if anything ever actually happened. Have you ever had one of those moments where you stare at something long enough? and you think you see something move from somewhere just outside the area of your focus. Just when I was satisfied with seeing nothing but the reflection of an empty room, I thought I saw a shadow move just out of range from the angle which I was looking at. My body froze as I was paralyzed, and my heart stopped. I focused even harder on the screen, waiting for the shadow to move again. After five minutes, which felt like five hours, I didn't see anything move again, and decided it was just my eyes playing tricks on me. I assumed they were probably fatigued from reading so long. I decided to switch things up and watch some TV instead. I reached for the remote and when I looked at the dark screen of the TV again, I saw a figure standing about 10 feet behind me. I couldn't make out any distinct features, but I could tell it was a woman because of the long hair and feminine body frame. I quickly turned around to face the being, but there was no one there. My heart pounding a million times a minute by this point. I turned again to the TV screen. No one was there. Now. I should probably use this time to explain that there is no way I was seeing a ghost and how I know this was a result of my vivid imagination. By this point in my life, we lived in the house for over 10 years and not once did anyone experience anything supernatural. Also, our house is a brand new house when my parents bought it and they've been the sole owners ever since. This house isn't built on some ancient burial ground or a hot spot for the dead. Stupidly, I again decided to convince myself that my eyes were playing tricks on me and continue to turn the TV on. Little did I know that my imagination was a true culprit of my visions, not my eyes or any ghosts. I settled on watching a romantic comedy in order to take my mind off the strange events that took place. Once the first commercial began to play, I noticed a sound coming from the upstairs at the corner of the room just behind the TV. It reminded me of a day where I had 
the house to myself until my parents came home from running errands, and it was really windy. I noticed a creaking sound coming from that very spot in the ceiling, and it was like someone found a very weak part of the floor upstairs and was just rocking back and forth on it. Turns out the awning over our back patio is in that very spot, and my dad forgot to fold the awning in, and the wind was catching it. This caused the awning to sway and create the creaking sound I had been hearing. However, now, as I look outside, I notice there's not a small breeze outside, and the awning remains still. So, what could be making that noise? Typically, I am more than happy to disregard strange creaks and groans the house makes once I'm alone, because I knew there was always a logical explanation. I'm aware that houses make various sounds that can only be described as the house settling. This is different. The longer I listened, the more the creaking sounded like footsteps. I couldn't move because I was absolutely terrified. I tried to get my body to move, but I was afraid to make any noise that would attract whatever was upstairs. After a few painstakingly long moments, I managed to finally convince my legs to move and gathered the courage to check out what could be making the noise upstairs. I knew that all of the doors were locked and I would have heard somebody breaking in if they tried, so I convinced myself that there was a logical reason for this creaking. Right as I approached the first step, the creaking suddenly stopped. I also stopped, right where I was. I looked up towards the edge of the loft, waiting to hear someone approach the stairs. What I saw next was truly horrifying. As I stared up towards the top of the stairs, I saw long black hair slowly creeping its way over the edge of the loft. Following the hair appeared the face of a woman. It was awful. She had an unnaturally wide grin, slightly displaying sharp yellow teeth. Her face was discolored as if she had been kept under the water for her entire life. The woman had no eyes, only dark sockets where eyes should have been. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. There was no way this was real. I had to be dreaming. Yeah, that's it. This is just a terrifying nightmare. I must have fallen asleep while watching the movie and let my imagination spill over to my dreams. I remembered reading an article that stated if you're unsure whether you're dreaming or not, look for a clock. If you're dreaming, there won't be any clocks. The great news is that just behind me at the foot of the stairs is a giant grandfather clock. The bad news is having to take my eyes off the thing staring down at me and risk losing sight of it. I managed to gather the courage to turn around by convincing myself what I was experiencing had to be a dream. There's no way any of this was real. Imagine my dismay when I turned around and see the grandfather clock ticking away and displaying 1035 with its hands. Sheer panic and fear gripped my body. I slowly looked back up towards where I saw the woman thing and I expected she was gone. I tried all of my might to will my body to move, to run. It wasn't until I could hear the joints of the woman's bones creaking and cracking as she began crawling on all floors down the stairs. Seeing her hideous face again gave my body the jolt that it needed, and I hauled ass away from the stairs. I ran to the bathroom and slammed the door shut, making sure it was locked and secure before stepping away. I sat at the farthest corner of the bathroom that was the opposite door and just broke down. I was so frightened that I had no clue what to do. I was literally stuck in my bathroom alone. My damn luck, I also left my phone on the charger near the outlet close to the couch, so I had no way to call for help. I mean, what could I have said anyways? Hello, operator? There's a woman with no eyes and looks like she's pretty dead creeping around my house. Can you send the closest officer to rescue me? Yeah, they would definitely believe me, I thought out loud in the most sarcastic tone I could muster. Ooh, hide and seek. I love this game, said a voice just outside my bathroom door. It was cold, 
and sounded like someone who chain-smoked cigarettes for their entire life. Not quite as deep, but enough to send a chill through my spine. I could feel the malice and evil radiating through my entire body. It filled my heart with dread, and I began to think that this was going to be the end for me. I kept whispering, but nothing... Oh, it kept whispering, but I couldn't make out nothing it was saying. It was as if it was trying to get me closer to the door by forcing me to listen closely. I couldn't handle listening to its voice anymore. It was just too much for my body to handle. I felt like my mind was on the brink of insanity. I must have imagined this thing up. I created it out of fear, and it knows that. I, I guess I got exhausted from the terror of it and fallen asleep at some point. As the sun lit up the bathroom, I awoke, pain in my neck from sleeping in there. I walked around the house, still afraid of something jumping out at me the whole time. As I went to check on the fish tank, sure enough, one of the fish had died. Damn it, I thought, Mom's going to be pissed. Then I headed to the kitchen to get some water, and that's when I noticed something that still scares me to this day. The back door was open. Oh, she got your fish. She got your fish and ate it. Maybe she was oh, never... just killed it. Just... Maybe she was never after you. Maybe the whole time she was talking to the fish. Yeah. Ooh, hello, little fishy. It's always so interesting to me that in all of these stories, the person's always like, I was so terrified, I couldn't handle it. And at some point, I guess I must have fallen asleep. <laughs> like, I can't even fall asleep by myself if there's nothing scary. I'm like still, I'm too scared to fall asleep. These people see actual demons and just doze off. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess it just hits you, yeah. Yeah, but it's like the first night. It's not like he's been awake for a week. Yeah. It's like the first night. He was up for like 10 minutes and he was like, well, I guess I fell asleep. I always like when they're like, well, what am I going to tell the cops? There's someone into my house. Yeah, that's what you tell them. Yeah, don't, <laughs> you don't have to tell them anything else. Yeah, just don't call them for stupid reasons. Like this this guy's dog is humping my dog. Okay. <laughs> in the park. Like, okay, all right. Thank you. All right, let's keep going. The Sally House. Back in October 2009, my friend Jono and I took a day trip to Atchison, Kansas, the alleged most haunted town in, in America. There are rumors that the Pope refuses to fly over Kansas because Atchison House is the gateway to hell. Jono and I were cynical about these claims, and we were going purely for the tourism aspect. We made our way to the Sally House a two-story home that used to house the practice of a local doctor. Sally, a six-year-old girl, was brought to the doctor's house due to a horrible pain in her stomach. The doctor quickly diagnosed the pain as appendicitis, and he attempted to operate on her with very little anesthetic. Sally died under the impression that a man was torturing her. In the many years following Sally's death, several people reported disturbing events occurring in that house, including men finding mysterious scratch marks on their bodies. Every year, the Atchison Tourism Department brings in a group of paranormal investigators to host ghost hunts. Curious minds purchase tickets for the event and enter the house expecting one of two things, either debunking the idea that anything paranormal is happening in the house or being scared shitless. While the ghost hunters were going over the story of the house and the investigation process, Jono gave me a strange look. What? I asked. He grinned a little and told me, 
You are legitimately scared. I shrugged. Yeah, because I want to be. I want to have this shit scared out of me. It's more fun that way. The house has three levels to it. A main level with a living room and kitchen. A second floor with three small bedrooms and a bathroom. And a basement. About 25 people came for the investigation, so we were split into three groups that would rotate which floor they explored. Jono and I were in the group that started on the second floor. Nothing of interest happened in the first bedroom. The second bedroom was the toy room, so named because someone had placed toys, dolls, stuffed animals, a football, in rows to see if Sally's youthful spirit would play with them. While in the toy room, a couple of women brought out dowsing rods and were asking yes or no questions that eventually led them to believe that they were speaking to the doctor who operated on Sally. The rods would move by themselves, crossing and uncrossing, pointing in specific directions. My analytical side made me think that it was random happenstance, and that the women were probably moving the rods without realizing it. While in the third bedroom, Jono put aside his cynicism and began using his military training in interrogation to talk to the supposed ghosts. In a gentle but firm fashion, he told them, We don't mean you any harm. We're here to make sure that your storage is not forgotten or skewed. We would very much appreciate it if you would make yourself known. That's when we saw the light. A light shone on the opposite side of the closed door. We could see it through the crack. Then there was a thud We ran back to the toy room to see what was going on, but nothing manifested, and none of the toys had been moved. While the three groups reconvened in the living room, Jono and I wandered back upstairs to look around. He turned to me with a confession. I don't think anyone heard me do this, but we were heading downstairs. I said to the ghost, hey, we're going downstairs. You should come with us. We'd like for you to join us. Oh, nice, I muttered. You've doomed us all. We made our way to the basement with the rest of the group. The paranormal investigators set up motion sensor lights facing away from us so we wouldn't accidentally trigger them. As she explained that several years ago, a woman had been pushed down the stairs to her death and her evil spirit haunts the house. There was a large hole in the wall leading to the area big enough to be a separate room and psychics had said that the hole was a portal to hell or another dimension. Of course, what could John O and I do? Well, we climbed right in and crawled around in the rubble, making snarky comments to one another as we felt around for cold spots. We didn't find anything of note, so we climbed back out. And that was when things started to get frightening. One of the other members of the group had set a EMI detector in the middle of the floor and had begun asking more yes or no questions. Is there someone here with us? Are you Mel? Have you been here for a long time? The red light on the Geiger counter would flicker on occasionally as if someone was using it to answer yes. Then the blue light on the motion sensor started going on and off as if someone was walking up and down the stairs. I walked across the room and waved my hand back and forth on the back side of the motion sensor, but that didn't set it off. It had to have been set off from the front, which was facing the stairs. It was about that time that John O decided to antagonize the ghost with the intention that it would make itself known to prove John O wrong. People say you're evil, he scoffed. But I don't think you're as evil as they say you are. I think you're just writing a check you can't cash. Why don't you do something spectacular to prove to us that you're here? Or can you just not do that? 
And that's when the pain in my chest started. It felt like someone grabbed my heart and slowly crumpled it like a piece of paper. Jono, stop, I told him. What's wrong? I can't breathe. Rather than checking to see if I was okay, the other members of the group began taking pictures of me to see if anything showed up in the photos that they couldn't see face to face. In fear, I went to stand by Jono across the room. I felt the pain slowly fade. The motion sensor lit up again. Members of the group gathered around it, taking readings and asking the spirit questions. Jono went along with them and continued trying to piss off the ghost. Yeah, this is really cute, he chided. But can't you do something better? Then the pain started again. I tried to catch my breath as I staggered over to John O. Once I was with him again, the pain ceased. It keeps happening when we're separated, I told him. John O shrugged. Yeah, maybe the ghost is trying to hit on you when I'm not around. Yeah, I guess I am pretty hot, I chuckled, trying to lighten the mood. The motion sensor flickered again. It likes... It's like it responds positively to your banter, one of the women pointed out. It must know that you're a couple. Jono and I glanced at one another. We decided not to go through the awkward exchange of how we are definitely not a couple, that we had a more brother-sister relationship with no physical attraction. Finally, after all that agony, we went upstairs and converged in the living room as the team that had been there shifted to the second floor. John O could tell I was still recuperating from the incident in the basement. Uh, should we leave? He asked. I sighed. Out of morbid curiosity, I want to see if it happens again. Okay, I'll stop being so snarky. On the off chance that there is something here, it might be using you to get back at me for being a jerk. The living room had an infrared camera set up so that we could see any orbs or things in the room. I was skeptical. As a photographer, I knew that dust clouds can easily be misconstrued as orbs. Two young women placed a few pennies and marbles on the floor, and the questions and pleas came from the group again. Are you here, Sally? One of the women asked. If you are, can you move one of the marbles? We just want to play marbles with you. Come play with us. My previously mentioned morbid curiosity caused me to move across the room to see if physical distance from John O would cause anything. I sat in the corner, curled up by the doorway to the vestibule with a clear view of the stairs to the bedrooms. I watched as our group members keep asking Sally to play with them, but to no avail. Come play with us, Sally, one girl urged. We're not going to hurt you, we just want to play with you. Suddenly there was a thud. Everyone's heads whipped around toward the sound, including my own head. And I saw what caused the noise. The football from the toy room bounced slowly down the stairs. Thump, thump, thump and rolled across the floor of the vestibule, coming to a stop by my feet. It might as well have been a severed head that had rolled up next to me because I was scared into a near catatonic state. All I could do was slowly point at the toy by my feet and whimper, wide-eyed, football. Two of the members of our group ran upstairs. I didn't take my eyes off the football, but I did hear one man yelling at the team upstairs. Who threw that football? He accused. What football? The football from the toy room. We didn't know there was a football in the toy room, a member of the team upstairs insisted. John O, seeing that I was in shock, scrambled to my side. Are you okay? He asked. When I didn't move, he reached over and took my hand. You know, I wouldn't let anything bad happen to you, he insisted, like the big brother he always has been to me. Our two group members came downstairs. They swear that they didn't throw the football, the woman explained. Well, 
another man in our group commented. Maybe Sally did want to play with us, but she didn't want to play with the marbles. She wanted to play with the football. My body relaxed as John O rubbed my hand with his thumb. Are you going to be okay? I think so. Just a little shaken up, I understated. This moment led to the denouement of the evening, with us gradually getting back to our normal, bantering selves. I was a little amused at how scared I'd been by something as trivial as a football. Jono and I left the house not long after midnight, and we made the drive back home. So what do you think? I asked him. I, I don't know, he shrugged. Maybe it was a herd mentality. Maybe it was because we had let ourselves be scared, or maybe there is something there. I don't know. I remained silent. I was just relieved that I had gotten out of that threatening environment. I just wanted to go home. Whoa, that Whoa. wasn't... Oh, there's an, an, there's no, not no, no, another no, part. No, no, that's it. So we'll never know what it was or if there was anything. No, I wish we it, don't know. I wish they would have said what uh, the pictures were. Remember, because she said that it was grasping her and all they, they didn't try to help. They just took pictures. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is, makes the story believable because that's exactly what ghost yeah, hunters what people do. Yeah, people do like, oh, shoot, shoot, shoot. All right, well, I think I think he should she should have said one more time at the end just to make sure that they everyone knew they were friends. I just wanted to go home, my own home, not Jono's. He has a place across the town. We're just friends. <laughs> We're just friends. Okay, brother sister relationship. All right. It's always like so frequent when people say they have a brother sister relationship and then they start dating and you're like, uh, just don't say you have a brother sister relationship. Yeah, I never had a brother sister relationship <laughs> with anybody but my sisters. <laughs> Where are you going, Sammy? The experience that I recently had with the elevator game completely vanquished my skepticism regarding the paranormal. The other world sounded really intriguing, and I decided to go ahead with a ritual one fateful Saturday evening. I live in a flat on the 11th floor of a building, so despite popular advice, I decided to perform the ritual in my own building using the elevator I use daily. I walked out of my apartment with a steely resolve and reached the elevator. Something in my mind advised me against what I was about to do, but my skepticism got the better of me, and down I went to the first floor in order to begin with the ritual. As I reached the first floor, I went on with the 4, 2, 6, 2, 10, 5, 1 routine. Although my heart was in my mouth out of anxiety and anticipation, not a damn thing happened. There was no woman on the fifth floor, and the elevator didn't ascend to the tenth floor as soon as I pressed the button for the first floor. This was a huge ego boost for my skeptic self. I returned to my flat using the same elevator, feeling victorious. However, as the night went on, I just couldn't sleep. I usually have such a hectic day, and I'm sound asleep by 11.30 p.m. at max. But something was really off about that night. The whole night I was twisting and turning. I kept waking up exhausted and covered in sweat. I started to do my chores to get my mind off everything. After finishing basic house duties, I went out to get some groceries. To my surprise, the elevator was out of order. I immediately made the mental connection of the damaged elevator to my performance of the ritual. I got very intrigued. I took the stairs, went out, got the groceries, and had a pretty normal Sunday. By 10 p.m. I was all ready to sleep when I heard a loud and shrill cry outside my door, which was strange as... The only other people on my floor were out on vacation. I went out to inspect the noise, and I saw wet footsteps with a slight maroon tint to them, kind of like mud, but slightly redder, 
like someone has had a slight cut on their feet after walking in some muddy terrain. I followed the footsteps out of my stupid curiosity, and to my utter shock, they led to the elevator, which surprisingly was no longer out of order. Something in my mind compelled me to get in the elevator, go to the ground floor, and check out with a security guard who had signed in the vi to visit the 11th floor. As down, and down I went, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, ping. The elevator doors opened slower than they usually do, as if unveiling something grand on the fifth floor, instead of the lobby I was intending to go to. A woman with dark hair wearing a black tattered evening gown entered the elevator. Although I wished I could run out of the elevator, something in me froze, disabling me from moving. My gaze fixed at her feet and I understood the source of those footsteps. Worn and torn skin dangled from her feet as if she was rotting from the inside out. And the smell, nothing can even be close to it. It was like a bunch of rotting corpses shoved into one person. As I looked up at her, she had a grin on her face, that evil, sinister, spine-chilling grin which was washed, which washed away my skepticism forever. At that point I knew the only way I was getting out of the elevator alive was by completing the damn ritual. I pressed a button for the first floor and the elevator began ascending upwards. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ping. As much as I wished to get to the bottom floor and run out for dear life, I had this primal compulsion to run out as soon as the doors opened. I now understood why people get off the elevator on the 10th floor, despite it being so risky. You just want to get away from that woman. As I ran out, her voice was in my mind. Where are you going, Sammy? Scared shitless, I ran, only to discover my utter solitude in the other world. It was like the hallway was endless. I couldn't get away from the elevator no matter how far I ran. I was stuck in some sort of loop. I briefly caught the sky outside through the corner of my eye and saw the reddish sky. There even was the fabled burning cross in the sky. As soon as I saw it, I couldn't move away from my gaze as if in a trance. The cross was laden with limbs and body parts, which seemed to have been ripped off of bodies. I summoned all my will, looked away, and pressed the button to summon the elevator. To my surprise, and contrary to what I had read otherwise, the elevator opened up instantly. I got inside and reverse performed the ritual without any interference, surprisingly. Down I went to the first floor and canceled the ascension on time. I rushed out, traumatized, scared, and scarred. I took the stairs of the 11th floor to my apartment and crashed senseless on my bed. As soon as my eyes were shut, I was back in the other world. This time my run was accompanied by her chase and followed by a sudden wake-up. I went through my day as bravely as I could, fearing the inevitable night and the sleep it contained. I tried to stay awake as late as I possibly could but I don't know when. I was back there again. This time she was dead ahead of me. I had no way of escaping. Her long torn out finger touched my abdomen. I was completely frozen. It was like a proper sleep paralysis. Her finger went through my skin and into my body. I felt a jolt of pain around my abdomen and woke up startled. I was burning up. I had a dark red mark on my abdomen. Scared to the, scarred to the marrow, or scared to the marrow. I went to the ER. Internal bleeding it was. That's when I knew I had to seek help. I went through some cleansing rituals on the internet, lying on the ER bed. The pain meds were kicking in. My lightheadedness came with a feeling of despair as I knew I wouldn't wake up from another sleep. I dragged my body to the chapel in the hospital. I prayed to God for the first time in my entire 25 years of life, just to keep me alive. 
for one more night. I don't know when I slept, but the next thing I remember was waking up to the sound of the janitor cleaning up the chapel. I realized I had gone through the night unscathed. I immediately checked out of my hospital, bought some sage, cleansed my entire house, myself, my surrounding premises. It's been a week without any night terrors. However, I constantly feel a presence watching me as I get out of my house and cross the elevator to take the stairs. I know it for a fact that I'm alive as long as my faith is. The faith you just got? The faith he just got. The first time you prayed. Oh, this is really scary. Yeah, that one's weird. Yeah, and then then you never know if it ever goes back all the way. If why would you even want to do this? The other world isn't good. Why we just want to go to hell for a moment? They're all skeptics. Ugh, too much free time, and then you have to spend the rest of your life wondering if it's gonna come back. Yeah, because it might just be waiting. Yeah, it's really freaky. Okay, let's get into the next one. Day 58. I'm a producer for Alone, the TV show on history. This story is about a participant we had in season two whose footage we had to cut. I've never felt comfortable talking about this before, especially because it opens me up for liability. After all, giving away TV show secrets is a bit of a faux pas, especially a survival show. But I feel like the people should know the truth. One of the things you may not know about the show is often... We have nearly double the amount of participants actually part of the show, and in editing we choose the most entertaining people and only include them in the actual season. That way we can weed out the boring people, super survivors who could literally last years alone, who we have to force tap or otherwise make them quit, and also get rid of the ones who can't even handle a single night alone in nature. This happens a surprising amount. But these people don't make for entertaining TV. Season 2 took place on Vancouver Island, a densely forested land with just as much fish as it has rain. The weather, the chill, the numbing wind took care of most of our contestants. And if you watched the season, you'd know the winner, Dave, lasted 66 days. Long, but like I said, there were other super survivors who lasted longer. We let them stay out as long as an experiment to see just how long it might take. These men, all the women at Tap by then, had built impressively sized cabins from the surrounding forests. All except Will, that is. That was his name. When Will sent us his application and video, he seemed like a normal guy. Well, for a survivalist. He was the kind of guy who came off as a good guy to know both at the local bar and should the apocalypse hit. The kind of survivalist who hunts for sport, but you know could really stay out there for some time. He had professional training, would take others on managed hunts, and spent a lot of time in nature preserves camping by himself. Really personable and had the looks for the show too. We know he'd be popular, but the image wouldn't last. When we picked up footage on day 90 and reviewed it, we found a very different person. Describing his story isn't exactly easy. See, one thing about the show is these guys are really alone. Like, really alone. We drop them off, give them their chosen 10 items of survival gear. Knife, axe, tarp, fishing line, stuff like that. They get to choose the 10 items themselves. Video equipment and say good luck. Oh, and there's the emergency satellite phone they use for when they finally tap. It also allows us to track their movements. Usually, at least. Of course, out in the wild, with tall, dense forests and that typical cloud cover of Vancouver Island, connections can be tricky. 
We leave them be until they hit the button to come home, except in the cases of super survivors and for Will. Days 1 through 38 were normal for Will. Compared to the others, he struggled no more or no less. Typical footage of failed fishing, some successful drop falls, a way to catch small rodents. But he wasn't desperate enough yet to eat insects. From the looks of it, he was doing well. No real mental struggle. Not even a single night scare, which is what we call the footage participants take when they are awakened by a rummaging animal, usually a mouse or another small rodent, but sometimes a wild hog or bear gets nosy. He talk about missing his family, his parents and brothers and sister, but every participant does that. But something happened on day 58 that seemed to change Will. We know something happened on day 58 because when Will reappeared on footage on day 59, he was a markedly different person. After not having taped anything since day 39, the footage seemed to come at daybreak, with Will's face covered in blood. We figured it must have been deer blood, as he had been tracking a small group of deer that seemed to live maybe a quarter to half mile away. He hadn't been too concerned about the local bears. They're big and dangerous, but he had only seen one in his entire time there. and wasn't planning on hunting any, and the other game was too small to be worth the energy. He was stringing up his kill. Too blurry to make out the animal, but like we said, we're pretty sure it was a deer. He hadn't cooked it yet, and we couldn't see if he had started a fire. It was just him across the camp, tying the animal up to a tree so he could gut it. The video seemed to come on and off without any movement from him at all. None of the pushing the button on the camera that you would typically see when starting or ending a shot. It just stopped. The video lasted 49 seconds. The participants are supposed to tape every day, and preferably as much as possible, so that we can splice together a ton of shots. Nature shots, instructional shots to show how they created their cabins, weapons, or the trinkets like necklaces that some of them enjoy making to pass the time. The next video from Will came up on day 70. Will didn't look like Will. Up until day 58, he had kept a pretty clean shaven face. He wasn't a big fan of beards and took care to use his survival knife to cut as close as possible to keep that quarterback turned model image we saw in the application video. But now he looked old. Dirty. Dried blood flaking from his face. Newer blood than day 58, but old enough to where it shouldn't be there hours or days after hunting and eating the kill. It was just different. He spoke, though. He apologized for not taking video as much as he should have. Said hunting was a little more difficult lately, and he felt like he was losing weight too fast. That he would dream of steak and of prior hunts and of family and of Thanksgiving dinner. He thought about tapping, but said it was too late for that. The video ended. As he had promised, the video started back up on day 76. This time, he was ranting, yelling at the forest. He talked about his food rotting too quickly despite the freezing temperatures, not being able to find any others to eat and starving. This was far past frustration we typically see from the participants. This was anger, deep-seated anger. The footage ended abruptly when he threw his hatchet at the camera. He didn't tape again until day 82. But... This wasn't normal footage, not even like before. The video came on, and it's just him standing there, silent, still, not in his tent. In the middle of camp, though the video was zoomed in closely on his face, no blood anymore and no movement from him either. Not to turn on the camera, not to make sure the shot was in focus, just standing. This continued for three days. We thought the video must have inadvertently paused, but I am not joking. We even checked the GPS records on the emergency phone. For three days, Will stood in his camp without movement, trees around him shaking in the wind, 
rain and snow falling from the sky. Will remained still and looking off into the distance until the video shut off in the afternoon of day 85. The battery and video card on the camera should have ran out two and a half days prior, but they didn't. It captured it all. We never did see or even hear any animals in the footage for those three days, though, which was weird. To be honest, we aren't sure what happened to Will. You see, we arrived at his camp on day 90, and Will wasn't there. It's not at all uncommon. Sometimes we get there and they're off hunting. We checked the GPS for the phone, but it was nowhere to be found. We waited in the camp all day until it started getting dark. We had already loaded Will's belongings, including the camera equipment, into the boat. A couple guys stayed behind in the tent to see when he'd show up. He never did. About three miles away down the coast, another suspected super survivor, Benjamin, had made camp. In his last scene, he's fishing along the coast, stick as a rod in hand and line in the water. He looks up from the river towards the camera, white-faced and wide-eyed, and the video abruptly stops. It was day 58. We never found him either. Okay, so do you think that Will is killing the other contestants, or do you think that something is killing the other contestants, like a Bigfoot or an alien? I think Will killed Benjamin and ate him. Okay, because he was going kind of crazy. Yeah. But then what happened to Will? Um, they said he never showed up again. I don't know. He went crazy. He... Yeah, but the other guy never showed up, so it's like... Because who... he was eaten. Yeah, but how do you know that they both weren't eaten by something? Oh, or something right. wasn't out there making them, you know, a goat man or a fucking... Well, I remember reading one of the comments that were like, Oh, he became a, a goat man. <laughs> he became a goat man? Or a goat man got him. I didn't know you could do that. He became it. When I grow up, I want to be a goat man. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be a goat man. I want to be in the woods. I want to eat people when I grow up. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay, good. Well, that's a that's actually a great theory. I think he was never found. They both were never found. I don't know. It seems like they might have gone, gone a little psychosis-y. Yep. And something might have preyed upon them. They went crazy. But no bodies. Even stranger. Maybe they're still out there. Okay, and this one is called... The Quick Greeting. The Quick Greeting. Literally, Nick, my whole job is to read the titles. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The Quick Greeting. My great... The Quick Greeting. Go ahead. My great uncle had passed away. And I didn't make it to the funeral because of a school commitment. I never mentioned his death to my friends because he was 98, and we were never that close. About a week later, my friends and I started talking to the board, and one friend asked if it knew anyone in the room. It spelled my name. They asked how old it was. It said 98. Then they asked its name, and it spelled out Oliver, his name. I started to cry. Then the board spelled out, missed you then went straight to goodbye. I haven't touched one since. Why, that sounds lovely. Who's Oliver? It's his great uncle that passed. Oh, what? Yeah. I mean, that... It could be just a demon, like, gaining the trust, like we've said all throughout this whole podcast. But if you had a really good experience, I don't know why you wouldn't touch well, one again. I missed you and then went straight to goodbye, because that's freaky. It is freaky. 
I'd be like, ah, but I wouldn't be super Especially scared. Especially if it was missed you and not miss you. Now I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, because it was like missed you. As in maybe his great uncle's like, ah, I died before I could kill you, you little brat. I was going to shoot you. <laughs> I had you in my aim. And, and then I died. <laughs> Thank you so much, you guys, for listening Thank to True Scary Stories with Edie. Um, check out the Facebook group, True Scary Stories with Edie. Submit your scary stories. Uh, check out Nick Garris' podcast, Oh, the Insanity. And check me out on Instagram at Edie Gibson Comedy. No scary. Scary.